This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The use of model systems such as fruit flies and worms to screen existing drugs for their potential to treat rare genetic diseases offers a relatively fast and economic method to find candidates for repurposing. The success at screening 4,000 compounds in a worm model of the neurodegenerative disease ALS to identify a candidate that is now in human clinical testing gave rise to Medellis, a Canadian company that is now repeating the exercise in other rare diseases. We spoke to James Doyle, CEO of Modellus, about model systems, how the company generates genetic avatars of patients, and how it works with rare disease drug developers, patient organizations, and patients to identify candidates for repurposing. James, thanks for joining us. Thank you for, for, for having me, Danny. How's your, how's your day going so far? It's going well, thank you. We're going to talk about Modellus, its use of model systems, and how it accelerates personalized drug discovery through repurposing existing therapies to treat rare genetic diseases. Perhaps we can begin with model systems, which are widely used throughout the drug discovery and development process. What are model systems and how have they generally been used? Yeah, so model systems is really any kind of biological tool that can be used to study or get gather information about a rare disease, about either the genetics of a rare disease, some of the underlying pathology of a rare disease. So what do, you know? What is the cellular effect of of a genetic mutation on a disease? What are therapeutic targets, what are pathways involved or disrupted pathways in, in a rare disease. And so th- those are all things that model systems can can help us answer. And so model systems are actually quite varied and quite broad, but I, I think it, the best two buckets for them would be to kind of model them, to, to, to set them into in vitro, which are, it's Latin for in the glass. So, so, so these are typically cell-based systems that we, that are cultured in the lab. So think of your fibroblasts or iPSCs, things like that. Those are uh, in vitro systems. Then you also have the in vivo systems and in vivo systems are, are, well, it's a lot, it's in the living. (laughs) So, so those are all your, your animal models. So things like fish, worms, mice, flies, dogs, uh, you know, non-human primates, those are all in vivo model systems. So yeah, I, I guess in vitro and in vivo would be the, the best ways to, to kind of uh, to, to kind of group those uh, group those to, together. Uh, how predictive are things like worms and flies when it comes to the workings of human genetics? What can we do with these simple model systems? 
Yeah, so I, I mean, I've, I've been working with worms for well since the beginning of my PhD. So I, I've been asked that question quite a bit. And and to be honest, like the answer to that was not obvious to me in the beginning either. Um, but what, what we have to remember is that, you know, it, yes, a worm and let's say a fly and a human look very different. But if you zoom down and you look at our DNA, our, our DNA is basically the same. And, and so we have all the same genes. It's, it's the same DNA molecules. The letters are just arranged a little bit differently, but ultimately it's the same DNA. And if you zoom out a little bit, if you compare a worm cell and a human cell next to each other, they're very similar to each other. And that's because they, they, so they look the same way because they essentially function the same way. So they have all the same, uh, all, all the same subcellular structures. They have the same, uh, the, the same nuclei. They have the same mitochondria. They have the same lysosomes. All of those subcellular structures are there. They all interact with each other in basically the same way because essentially they are the same. Like the underlying biology of a worm cell is basically the same of, as that of a human cell. It's just how they're arranged, you know, to make the organism a worm versus a human where it's, it's a little bit different, where it differs. Well, maybe not a bit different, but it differs quite significantly. But at the cellular level, they function the same way. So that means that if you if you take if you model a, a genetic mutation that that causes a disease in, in humans and you mimic that same mutation, the same gene in, in worms or flies or fish or some of these other smaller model organisms, uh, you're you're likely to disrupt the pathways, the same pathways, in the same way that the human pathways are disrupted. Thereby, these small animal models allow you to to gain really valuable information about the underlying causes of human disorders. And so, I'm I mean, I'm I'm quite a, I guess you can say I'm I'm a little bit biased against against the in vivo systems and and some of the advantages that they offer over the in vitro systems, so these cell based systems, because especially when it comes to understanding what are the underlying causes of some of these uh, genetic disorders, because what these what these small animals or what these model systems, these in vivo model systems allow you to do is to to look at the or understand what is the impact of a genetic mutation at the organismal level. So we're not just talking about what is the what is the impact of uh, this mutation in this cell in a dish, but what is the impact of this mutation to a to what's essentially a live biological organism? How do we know uh, a finding in a simple model system is valid? Um, so we don't always, um, just like we don't always, we're, we're not always sure how things will translate from, from let's say in vitro systems to translate to, you know, humans like therapies for, for example. And this is where, it, and this is where it's advantageous to always have a plan in mind. Like there, there's, I, I don't think that one single model organism is going to help answer all questions related to a rare disease related to a therapeutic uh, drug discovery program but having multiple model systems in your pocket can help you have the, the the largest number of assays the largest number of tools available to answer the broadest range of questions so things can be things can be validated uh, from let's say worms in fish in, or from worms to, to mice and and that's that's how we can validate and and, and in a way ensure or confirm huh, maybe not confirm but ensure that uh that you're moving findings along that have the highest translational potential so the, the highest chance of ultimately working in humans you've taken these model systems and created a process for screening drugs i i thought we could as an example 
go through the work you've done finding a drug that could be repurposed to treat the neurodegenerative condition ALS. For listeners not familiar with ALS, what is it? So ALS is a absolutely devastating neuromuscular disorder. People uh, people also know it as motor neuron disease or Lou Gehrig's disease, and it's an absolutely absolutely devastating and fatal neuromuscular disorder. And and typically, what happens is um, it, there are multiple different gen- genetic causes underlying the condition. But typically, what happens is that the motor neurons uh, denervate the muscles, so they the, the motor neurons die, retract from the muscles. Um, the muscles are no longer stimulated, so the muscles atrophy, and uh, patients ultimately die from from the disorder. Uh, and it's incredibly it's incredibly fast acting. From symptom onset to uh, patients dying from the disease can happen in anywhere from from six months to five years. So it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a, it's an incredibly devastating dis- disorder. And unfortunately, there's there's uh, now there's there's definitely a lot of interest in developing therapies for it, but um, it's still uh, it's still quite uh, uncured, or it's still quite it still has a quite a, quite an unmet need. Well, walk us through the project. What did you do, and, and take us through each step and and what it is, and and how long it takes. Yeah, so this is um so this kind of our the the, the work that we do at Modellus and how it was applied to ALS was uh, came came out of a of a research project led by one of our co-founders, uh, Dr. Alex Parker at the University of Montreal. He's a professor of neuroscience there, and uh, he had a I mean a couple of years ago what we can now say was look back and say it was a pretty crazy idea, but but it worked, and that was to generate worm models of ALS. So taking mutations that cause ALS in humans, mimicking them in worms, and then asking and answering the question of, well, if we find drugs that can actually make the ALS worms better, could they also make ALS patients better? So again, it seemed like a pretty crazy idea at the time because it definitely is a big leap to go from worms to humans, but um, he tried it. And so screened thousands and thousands of drugs on these sick ALS worms, identified some that made them better, but but obviously the jump from worms to humans is quite large, and this is where uh, this is where we kind of go back and touch back on the the point of having multiple models available to to validate the translational aspect of our discoveries. So validating drug hits from worms in fish in ALS fish and from fish in ALS mice. And that led to the identification of a compound, a drug called pimazide, a repurposed drug that's been around for about 50 years now. Um, and it turns out that it actually has a really good therapeutic potential for ALS. And so based off these uh, preclinical findings from worms to fish to mice, um, it went into a small 25-patient clinical trial at one site up here in Canada, um, which was successful <laughs> and um, uh, is now being tested in 100 patients across the country. So it was definitely... Um, uh, it was I mean, it was the first example of going from worms all the way through to humans and purely translational drug discovery, and I, I think really set the stage for for changing how we think about uh, small animals like worms and fish in uh, translational drug drug discovery. And so, um, since since that success, uh, we founded Modellus. We founded the company so we could apply this this uh, this approach to to drug screening to genetic disorders a bit more broadly. Well, what is pemazide and what did you see in the animal models to to suggest that this could have potential in ALS in humans? Yeah, so uh, so pemazide typically it's it's as I as I think I mentioned it's an antipsychotic that's been around for about fifty years, but it's typically thought of as a as a as a last resort antipsychotic. So it's it's what we call a very dirty drug. So it has a lot of off target effects. Um, it's 
difficult to tolerate it usually, and that's why it's not it's not commonly used. It's really a, a one of those those last resort antipsychotic drugs. Uh, and so, but as it turns out, among its many side effects, one of them is that it acts on on calcium channels at the neuromuscular junction, um, which is not something that was known before, but something which which was identified out of this study. And so. What we think is happening is that pimazide is actually targeting uh, T-type calcium channels at the neuromuscular junction, helping stabilize the interaction between neurons and muscles, helping stimulate that, and essentially keeping the neurons, um, keeping the, the neurons healthy and active uh, to prevent or at least delay the onset of symptoms uh, or delay the onset, or I should say, delay the retraction and neuronal death that typically leads to symptom onset in ALS. In terms of moving this forward, has Medellis's work ended? Or is someone stepped in and doing the clinical studies now? Yeah, so so this is still in its uh, it's still in now it's in a phase two B clinical trial in about a hundred patients uh, across Canada. Um, so this is uh, this is work led up by, at the University of Calgary, uh, led up by a clinician over there called Dr. Lawrence Korngriff, who's actually our chief medical officer at Medellis. Uh, and so this is we're we're really uh, anxiously awaiting the results of the of the clinical trial. Uh, since this was a, an academic project, however. Uh, we are, um, Modellus itself is not actively involved in this, in this project anymore. Um, but we are, uh, we are looking towards the future and, and, and applying this approach to genetic disorders more broadly. In the future, would you expect to be doing the clinical development of, of these drugs? It really depends on what the nature of the drug is, and so um, for for certain uh, for certain diseases, for certain rare disorders, for some of the projects we're, we're working on or will work on in the future. Um, it, it would make sense to go into the into clinical trials or at least try to understand the first inhuman uh, to to undertake the first inhuman uh, studies of those drugs. Um, but other in other cases, it might make sense to to sell or to out license the the IP to uh, to groups that have more experience or or a, a greater track record in those specific in indications. Um, so it, it, it really depends. We we are a small biotech. We like to think of ourselves as a you know a drug discovery platform, a preclinical platform. Yes, we we do like to think of ourselves as bench to bedside, but primarily we are, we are a drug discovery platform. And so it's it's our it's our job to identify hits. We'll go into clinical trials where it makes sense. Uh, where yeah, where where it makes sense. Uh, but otherwise, looking to to identify hits for others to to take into clinical trials. Well, what is the business model? Who's the customer and how do you fund your work? So the, the, the ultimate client for Modellus are pharmaceutical companies or clinical stage biotechs for who uh, who will eventually, you know, in license or buy the, the IP, the, the molecules that we're identifying so that they can then continue development, continue clinical development uh, and take it through to commercialization, ultimately get those drugs to, to patients. We also work with directly with patient advocacy groups or patient organizations um, who represent rare diseases who have loved ones with rare rare disorders and and it's part of part of our mission as as you know scientists founders of a company to 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 help groups like this and so um we're we're very flexible on on how these kinds of partnerships work uh, but we'd like to think of our partners helping advance the goal of these organizations through drug repurposing screens and so trying to identify drugs that can easily be repurposed or even uh, new chemical new chemical entities uh that that could have therapeutic potential against rare disorders uh we work 
with we work with groups really from from a to or from bench to bedside so so working from the very beginning uh developing new animal models for these disorders to try and better understand the underlying causes of the diseases and that we can then use them for uh, this high throughput drug screening uh either new drug screening or drug repurposing to try and identify potent therapeutic compounds against these ultra rare disorders um yeah how expensive is this to do? What it would take for a, an individual patient or patient organization to have you model their disease and identify potential drugs to repurpose? It, it, it really depends. It, it really depends. Everything is uh, every all, all of our projects are really custom designed to meet our partners' exact needs. Um, we're, we're very flexible in, in our offerings. Um, yeah, we're, we're very flexible in our offerings. It, it also it also depends on are we doing this as a fee for service or are we doing this as a as a as a as a partner with with shared interest with with shared uh, with shared results of the project as well. So we're we're very flexible on that and um, can and as I said, we we really it's really our goal to help advance the 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 goals of our partner organizations, um, and we're very flexible in how how we approach that. I know Medellis has talked about venture philanthropy models where families have a stake in financial outcomes. Have you actually structured any that way? Uh, yeah, so so we are we operate through uh, through uh, this venture. Yes, the venture philanthropy for 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 the partnerships or for the the shared uh, the the shared shared results. The- um, this would typically the kind of venture philanthropy would typically would typically kick in once there is a partner to then continue developing that program. So uh, if we, once as hits are identified, as those get sold or out licensed, it'll then be uh, with the, the, that that will kind of kick in then. And the way that structure, the the way the venture philanthropy is kind of set up, it really depends on, um, again, we're, we're, we're very flexible on this. Either it's a, it's a come to to a share of revenues, um, a, um, a, a, you know, a special access program, uh, trying to, to negotiate a special access program with, um, with the, uh, with the partner organization or with the partner biotech or yeah, with the partner biotech or partner pharma to, to get patients on the drugs faster. Um, it, it, it really depends. And, um, it, it really depends, but we, because, because we do see this as a, as a partnership and working with patient advocacy organizations and they help do, they do help fund the upfront costs of the R and D related to the projects. We want this to be a win-win win where if, if we identify a therapy it's not just a good it's not just a win for the patient organization or for the i should say for the patient community but also for modellus uh, but then also for the patient organization itself to be able to to use either proceeds or use uh, the results from that to continue advocating and doing the great work that they do for the community and how many conditions has modellus looked at to date so right now we have about uh we have about six ongoing yeah we have about six ongoing programs right now and it sounds like you're really focused on the discovery side. What what's the furthest you might take a program on your own? Uh, so on our own, it'll it would likely be uh, phase two, uh, a phase two clinical trial. Beyond that, it becomes uh, it becomes it will likely become too too large for who we are and who we're trying to be as as a platform drug discovery biotech. Um, but uh, I guess the future will will only tell. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll cross that bridge once we 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 get there. And if there's uh, because obviously, if there's uh, if there's good opportunity in taking things forward uh, further ourselves, then we don't want to shy away from that. If if it makes sense at that stage. James Doyle, CEO of Medellis. James, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.